Hey everybody, Jeff here. We've been gone for a minute, so thanks to all of you who've hung around during the interim. The episode you're about to hear was recorded in December of 2020, and between now and then, some stuff went sideways, but we have the audio processed and ready for your listening enjoyment. One interesting byproduct of the long delay is an opportunity to reflect on how much has and has not changed over the last eight months or so. Inside, you'll hear references to the advance of critical race theory, the rise and triumph of the modern self, the awakening of the Southern Baptist Convention, and even Afghanistan. So here it is, Dr. Jared Longshore of Grace Baptist Church of Cape Coral, Florida, and Founders Ministries, joins us for a review of The Hate You Give. Enjoy. Hey, 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 Pop Culture Quorum Deo, we've got a treat for you. Today's episode is an excess of Jared's. We have the good Dr. Jared Moore back as normal. Uh, but the real treat is that Jared Longshore has joined us. If you don't know that name, you need to familiarize yourself. Jared is Vice President of Founders Ministries. He's also the Associate Pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral. And uh, Jared Moore, before I find out how you're doing, let me say hello to our guest, Jared Longshore. Thanks for being on, man. Man, so happy to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing today, Dr. Moore? Doing well. Doing well. I was... Uh... Reading Bob Inc. earlier and getting ready for tonight. I'm trying to go through his Reformed Dogmatics on Wednesday nights, and um, it's uh, dense. They're thick, and um, but I'm I'm enjoying it. It's it's more for me, you know. I'm taking his thoughts and you know where we agree, kind of wrestling with Scripture, and then um, where we disagree, correcting him. I haven't had to correct him yet. Fifty pages in, so. Well, wait till we get to uh, subjects of baptism. For real, yeah. Yeah. So, Jared, it is Wednesday night as we're recording. What happens in Florida on Wednesday nights for you guys? Well, we have a uh, Bible study and prayer meeting here at Grace. And so just spend some time looking at the Word together and then have a corporate prayer meeting. So sing a couple songs as well. That's usually what our Wednesday nights consist of. Yeah, I love singing with the church, man. All right. Well, hey, look— if I've got it right, I'm the only non-PhD on the podcast right now, right? So two guys named Jared, two guys with PhDs. <laughs> That's just true. Yeah, I don't know if that, you know, I don't know how much that helps if I'm trying to exegete a movie, but I'm happy to give it a, <laughs> give it a go. <laughs> well, I'm not intimidated at all. I don't feel diminished. Um, what is, what's your PhD in, Mr. Longshore? Mine is in uh, biblical spirituality. It's a major in biblical spirituality with a uh, I think I have a minor in historical theology. I get a little confused about how those major and minors work, but that was the that was the substance of my doctoral studies up at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Did you do that through the modular program? I did. Yeah, man, that that is exactly what someday still I have hope of doing. So uh, I, if if Haken's around, I'd love to do one of those under Haken. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's jump into it, and what I mean into it is not the movie. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but Jared Longshore, we booked you to come on the podcast, and in between doing so, you guys at Founders have rolled out some major announcement. I didn't know this was coming, so it's a pleasant surprise. Talk to us and our listeners about the Institute of Public Theology. Yes, we're very excited to see this launch. The Institute of Public Theology is um, now up on online, and we We'll be opening up registration sometime in the spring to start coursework in the fall. And we have a founding faculty of uh, Tom Askell and then me and uh, Dr. Tom Nettles and uh, Vody Bauckham. And then a growing list of adjunct faculty. But presently, 
We have uh, Dr. Mark Coppinger, uh, Jim Scott Oric, uh, Chad Vegas, uh, Travis Allen, and who else am I missing? I'm missing somebody. It's, it continues to grow. We're very excited about it. Uh, really, what gave rise to this was the increasing um, need to see confessionally sound doctrinal teaching that uh, is applied appropriately to the world in which we live. So we're watching our own culture just decay more and more. I mean, it has been. We've got plenty of books about the downfall of Western civilization. But that that secularism that is so rampant in our society is clearly hardening in ways and is being um, codified in statute in ways that are astonishing. And we have some of the guys that are solid doctrinally, but for one reason or another, don't take it out into the public square. And then you've got another group that have tried to go out and uh, speak in the public square and be impactful there, but really have not been sound enough in their theology. And so we are uh, attempting to see ministers that will be trained up, um, knowing God's word, and then knowing the times as well and how to speak the truth in love. Well, that's wonderful. Sounds great. Hey, I think, um, you know, if y'all want an extension center up in Middle Tennessee, I know two churches, man, that'll, uh, you know, we're, Jeff and I are about 30 miles from each other in Middle Tennessee, and uh, I imagine we could, we could assist in that way. If y'all hey, are that's what I'm talking about. By the time the summer, the summer gets pretty hot down here, so maybe we could swing up there during that summer, summer yeah. time. I'm also very willing to snowbird to Florida, and so if my students <laughs> who show up up here need to be driven down to Florida, I'm I'm your guy on that, guys. I can do it. Yeah, yeah. amen. Yeah, I uh, I saw that list of faculty members come out yesterday, and I I didn't know every name on the list, but I knew enough, basically the ones you you mentioned there that got me super excited. And uh, Dr. Moore, Dr. Coppinger was involved in your dissertation uh, committee, is that right? Yeah, he was my advisor. He was the chair. So he's the main on, dude, yeah. I served on a board with him one time uh, briefly, and great guy. He gave me a speaking of pop culture. He gave me a Beatles book, analyzing all their uh, all their songs. I appreciate Doctor Coppinger. Oh, That's he's cool. great. You know, we've got this Wield the Sword project that we're doing, and he is. Uh, I don't know if he's the next episode or he's either three or four, uh, but his is on aesthetics and just brilliant. So Doctor Coppinger's great. That's great. He just sent me a book. Uh, oh, his latest book, uh, Philosophy in Cases. I just got it a couple of days ago, but um, I, that, that's the wrong title. But um, you're gonna read it though, aren't you? It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got it in my office. Yeah. But. So last thing on Coppinger, the guy whose board I was on with Coppinger, um, I stayed at his house. I stayed at Mark's house one night uh, with this friend. We were traveling through Nashville and. Mark wasn't there, so he let us in, and I just could have spent the whole night down in his library, man. He's got an impressive, impressive library. Uh, All right, so, I mean, all cards on the table. Probably anyone listening to this knows in advance. Um, We invited you on, Dr. Longshore, because Founders Ministries has helped lead the way in evangelicalism in terms of seeing the problems with critical race theory, uh, probably scaling up from there to critical theory maybe going under the general heading of social justice, woke social justice, and kind of heading like that. And so one of the things we want to do with our podcast is talk about the way movies serve as vehicles for ideas that influence Christians, maybe unawares, and uh, to help our listeners be very intentional about filtering everything they're seeing and 
stories that are by nature very compelling uh, through the grid of a biblical worldview. And so I thought, man, let's see if uh, let's see if Longshore will come on and talk to us about a uh, a pro woke, pro critical theory and movie. And we settled on the hate you give. And so if it's okay with you fellas, the way we tend to do things here is I'll read the IMDb summary. Y'all tell me anything that's left out of the IMDb summary, IMDb summary, uh, and then we'll jump into actually analyzing the film. How's that sound, fellas? Sounds, Sounds good. good. All right. So IMB says that The Hate You Give is about a young lady by the name of Star who witnesses the fatal shooting of her childhood best friend, Khalil, at the hands of a police officer. Now facing pressure from all sides of the community, Star must find her voice and stand up for what's right. All right, anything? Uh, maybe we'll go with you first, Dr. Moore. Anything you'd add to that summary? No, no. What's right, I think, is is uh, it just Star must find her voice. I don't think what's right, like there's this objective right in this movie. I think that's being too kind. There's not. It's uh, it's Star must find her voice and stand up for what she says is right. <laughs> so, I mean. Dr. Longshore, any additions? No, that's exactly right. I mean, the thing that jumps out about the um, description is the find her voice. That's exactly what I uh, what what struck me about the film, which very interestingly to me is is really one layer down from the CRTI stuff. Mm. And I think it's helpful to think about this film and not just see it as critical race theory and intersectionality, uh, but to see kind of the deeper um, the deeper implications that give rise to the critical race theory and intersectionality that is in the film. And uh, I, I could go on. I mean, I don't know how much you want me to talk about this right now, but I'm very interested in helping Christians see the deeper um things that are just one layer down from CRTI so that they can um, assess both it correctly and they can kind of know how they ought to operate things they need to be saying, doing. Um, so it was a, it was a brilliant film in my mind to see, to, to identify that dimension, not only the critical race theory that's there, but then what's going on below the surface. Well, yeah, we, we want to get into all that. And so, the way we do what we do is we take the simple categories of a biblical worldview, creation, fall, redemption, glorification, and start kind of pulling the narrative of the film apart and try to see what's there. And so if we go through that heading, I, I do think this movie is sort of it, it's sort of built on some things we would say are creationally good. It's built on things that are baked into human existence. And then what it does with those things is not necessarily always profitable. But just to start on that front. Um, you know, trying to say something positive. I appreciated how central the family was to this movie. And I think that's one of the ways that uh, the narrative of the film and the ideas it carries. Uh, I think that's one of the ways they kind of build the power and the, uh, the the compelling element of the narrative here, that they put this in the kind of family that like we want to celebrate and we would want to be a part of. And we would uh, we would want to say is a good thing. And again, where it goes from there. Uh, I, I can't I can't endorse and celebrate, but I did appreciate I appreciated the emphasis on the family. Uh, Dr. Moore, any any creational goodness you see sort of as we lay out the the world of this movie? Um, yeah, I mean, the the family was good. The emphasis on, you know, I mean, it's it's almost like a complementarian family, like a poor picture of it, but, you know, a crude version of it. Um, 
that's something we can celebrate where there is uh, where the husband is evidently head of the house type thing. He is clearly the leader of the home. Uh, but by the time you get to the end of the movie, Star is. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like there's at least this this assumption. Um, fathers matter. Uh, mothers matter. Uh, they're important. And even the thug life um, talking about it matters how you raise your kids, what you teach them. Uh, I mean, all, all those things are positive that are, you know, generally we can say that those are true and good. I mean, Longshore, I don't know how much stood out to you about, you know, that you'd want to celebrate in this movie. But just while we're thinking about uh, the creational elements here, any, any anything that rises to your mind? Yeah, well, I mean, I did. I thought there was actually a, a good bit of that. The I'd highlight the the family, particularly the uh, father, this maverick character. Man, I was endeared to him. Um, you know, in the beginning, shows that outset, he's he's teaching his kids the I think it's the ten point plan of the Black Panther uh, Party. And so, you know, of course, that's not a good idea. That's not a good look. You got Mark, Marxist um, doctrine all through that, and everybody knows that. Which was interesting, you know, like I don't I don't know. I mean, there's going to be some people that still want to praise Black Panther Party, but for a broader audience, it's almost like they're watching that knowing that's not really right, which I thought was an interesting way for the movie to approach it. And then it comes back and is so instrumental at the end of the film where where stars not going to speak up. Uh, I believe at that point it's because of the. The gang, the king, something that was basically trying to silence her and and the father gets them out and he, he's catechized them for that moment. You know, now he comes back to the Black Panther system, um, you know, and strangely, in that case, it's working so that she would have the courage to say what needs to be said. Um, so you're, you're watching this. Um, the father who has this really um, poor understanding of things he's clearly you know he's got latent racism in him when the when the white boyfriend shows up which i've laughed out loud that one scene where she's like you know is my boyfriend is he's like you bring a white i think a white boy home or something like that and they say what he's my boy he's a boy and he pauses and he goes that boy's white (laughs) and i thought that was so i thought that was an interesting moment to i've made the um contention about racism being um, racial pride or racial animosity, and that both of those sins, pride and animosity, can come in different degrees. They're all sin, but they can come in different degrees. And even with Maverick, who has kind of got his background of Black Panther Party, he's still, you know, smiling at his daughter, who's who is um, dating a white boy. Um, so, you know, his his pride and his malice, how deep does it go? I mean, it was it's there. But I thought that was an interesting kind of um, admonition or just an interesting part of the film. But all that does the Maverick character kind of interested me because he had so much going for him with the courage. I mean, how many standing up for his family? I love the scene where the the um, the lead uh, gang member rolls up at his store at Maverick's store and Maverick hasn't seen him for a long time. Maverick's been to prison and um, the lead gang member happens to have star in the car, right? Gets out and he gets in the vehicle and he says, you know, you don't have to worry about star. 
And then the guy's like, oh, it's like that. And he's like, yeah, it's like that. So this father that's um, protecting his family and at times just straight protecting them from guarding the house to defending them when when they're being taunted and stalked. So that was that was remarkable to me. And then related to that is just struggle, like the the struggle that Maverick has, that he has a lot of things that he's going to have to overcome and he's resolved to um, to have things be different for his children than it was for him. He's really he's really resolved to do that. Now, of course, on both of these fronts, you've got things on the foundation that are wrong that kind of make everything go topsy turvy. But those are those are kind of signs of um, of creation, grace and common grace in uh, in Maverick's life, particularly. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can watch the movie without rooting for Maverick and his wife. I mean, there's there's an interesting aspect of this movie in that, like, every decision is super complex. And um, the, the amount of factors that have to be evaluated to make a good decision is kind of consistent with what it looks like in the real world. But even as we're thinking through uh, how good a character, what, what a model of, like, hey, I'm going to lead my family. Now, again, problems with how he might have made certain choices, but how good a model Maverick, Maverick is as, a, as a, a proactive father. The movie also kind of comes around and reinforces this on the other side because he said in contrast to that that guy, that Anthony Mackie, I think is the actor's name that you just mentioned, um, Falcon King, who's like the, the local gang leader. And he's just living in a long-term hookup with this woman named Aisha. He has a couple kids with her. It, his family life is clearly destabilized. Um, the older brother, uh, Seven, who is a part of Falcon's household and Mavericks, clearly he's gravitating to the more stable, uh, traditional nuclear family uh, and seeing the problems with uh, the destabilized environment of Falcon's household. And I just thought, you, I mean, you really can't get away from this. If you tell a story that you want people to uh, engage with at a visceral level, you, you tell a story you want people to be rooting for the characters, uh, you can't really get away from these kind of elements. And when we talk about stuff that's following the movie, for me, the defining characteristic of this film is contradictions. And I know that this movie is not a Black Lives Matter film. Like it's not a, you know, it wasn't bankrolled by the national organization. But watching this movie, you can't kind of get out of your head just how crazy it was that BLM as an organization said, we intend to disrupt the traditional nuclear family. Uh, even the stories that are told that sort of, uh, are supposed to help people enter into that kind of narrative. Well, they depend on a very traditional nuclear family to kind of give us a sense of normalcy in, in the real world. Does that make sense? The nuclear family is still is still the emphasis, um, still the ideal. Did you guys look at any of the I don't know critic reviews or, or conversation around this movie that that are in print since 2018 when it came out? Did y'all dig in any? Mm -mm. No. Well, on that front of trying to be more palatable to white audiences, that was a criticism I read in a couple of different movie critics that I found on Rotten Tomatoes. This movie is largely celebrated by movie critics, but one of the criticisms that came up uh, multiple places is that the lead, uh, the young lady who plays Stark Carter, Amandla Stenberg, uh, who I thought was a beautiful young lady and did a wonderful job in the role, um, there was a criticism of this movie in that it's at, it's adapted from a young adult novel. And in the young adult novel, Star's character is clearly denoted to be a dark skinned girl. And Amanda just isn't. And so uh, she actually came out in an interview and addressed the, the criticism of casting a light skinned 
uh, young woman in the role. And she said, I realize it's a problem because people of my skin tone are more palatable to white audiences. And uh, I was just I was just struck again by how much of identity politics is a spider's web where really no good decision. uh, There's no such thing as a good decision, an upright decision, a wise, just decision. There's always going to be a mechanism where uh, the people who made the decision got it deeply wrong. And 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 Stenberg is a huge advocate for social justice. She did uh, a, a project when she was a senior, I think in high school, called Don't Cash Crop My Cornrows about black cultural appropriation. Uh, this is a woman deeply invested in that movement. And yet just her very skin tone is a problem for some of the people watching this film. I, I don't know how you I don't know how you try to do anything positive under those terms. Oh, no, it's a monster that eats its own, man. I just, you know, I mean, it's that um, that new mutants uh, director who, you know, cast a, he was supposed to cast a, what was it? The comic book character was a Brazilian, was an African Brazilian, Afro Brazilian character, and he only cast a Brazilian character. His skin was too light, and so they just ate him up on social media. He ended up leaving social media over it. It's just, and he he, I mean, there's a lesbian relationship that's front and center in that movie like i mean which by the way he said at the center of the movie because he thought the lesbian kiss at the end of uh return of skywalker was token and not central enough to the story so like it you know the the song from the greatest uh showman it's never enough it seems to be the theme of attempting to navigate crti waters You, you just it's never enough well it's it's the same way in evangelicalism like you see all in evangelicalism in the sbc this constant uh, catering to women and acting like we're not complementarian anymore and just ashamed. It seems like shame of what the Bible clearly teaches and clearly says. And um, it, it aggravates me that people in the SBC are willing to prop up bad female theologians simply to kind of say, no, 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 really, we, we do see – we we we're the good guys. We're we're not like these complementarians of old who are male chauvinists. I, I just it just aggravates me. It aggravates me because the Bible is clear as a bell on this stuff, and we need to be unashamed about it. We need to be. We don't have to be. You know, you don't have to be in in people's faces. But good grief, just just say what the Bible says and let the chips fall where they may, instead of acting like. You know, I, I don't know. I just I get aggravated over this. You've got. You've got things in the SBC right now where folks are where uh, females are being put in leadership positions um, at even SBC institutions where where it shouldn't happen. You've got um, at, at Southeastern right now there's a a female um, who doesn't have her PhD yet who is the assistant uh, to the director of the PhD program at Southeastern. Like she's over the THM program right now. And most of these guys are pastors. So you've got a non-pastor who's directing the program that's training pastors. And for what reason? For what reason? Well, Jared, this is all new to me. I didn't think there were any problems in the Southern Baptist Convention, so you'll have to just enlighten it me. It just aggravates me because it's never going to be enough. Yeah. You're you're not going to satisfy – you think you're going to satisfy the feminists in the SBC by doing things like that. You're not. You're not. So why do it? Why do it? Instead of saying we know better than every every other Southern Baptist who came before, 
I mean, it's funny. They say, oh, this is the first woman who's ever been put in this position. This is the first one. Like, it's a good thing when we're, we're rebuking hundreds of people. I mean, not hundreds of people. Hundred, I mean, hundreds of years <laughs> of, of faithful Southern Baptist. And, and we're, we're acting like it's a good thing. Like, oh, they were all chauvinists that came before. Come on, man. I mean, come on. Like, what are we doing? I, I don't things like that it's just it's never going to be enough and it's just going to have to keep going further and further and further and further and eventually they're going to we're going to try to have a, a female SBC president and there people are going to say why can't we do it it's a parachurch organization all this stuff and I'm like well at least shouldn't the you know the the leader of the SBC shouldn't he at least be pastorally qualified or I mean can we you know like I, I just anyway this person's going to represent the SBC like what are we doing well, Dr. Moore, I wish you would quit beating around the bush and just tell us what you think about it. Um, yeah, we're going to have to cut up. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm just long short, I'm not sure if you want to touch any of that, but the idea of sort of catering to identity politics categories, uh, is there an in there? Can can we find a satisfying enough strategy to say we've met the uh, we've met the criteria or is that is that a fool's errand? Oh, yeah. Well, you certainly can't do that. Um, so what's interesting is to think about why, um, there is a tendency for people to do it. And I think that there's two, there's two, two things that come to mind when I think about why, um, certain leaders might try to cater to that kind of thinking. One is, um, just not having the courage to reject it. So there's, I do think there's people that know there's just people that know that um, the whole critical race theory intersectionality thing is really bad and they just don't have the courage to say it publicly. I mean, they might even text you privately and say, well, you know, we're with you, but we, you know, we can't say these kind of things publicly or else we'll be we'll be in hot water. So there's that thing. Like, I mean, like hypothetically, right? I mean, just yes. Hypothetically yeah. speaking. And then the, the other but the other thing is just as much. The second, the second reason I do believe that happens is because people have been bit by this worldview more than they know, and they they don't they don't actually know um, when they're doing it. This is where I think the film was so helpful. This film was, it, you know, on the face of it, it is um, you've got the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, like you've got the white. Um, you got the white private school and then you Basic have the really bad black school. And then star of course is going to the bourgeois um, white school. And she mentions white privilege and that kind of thing. So you have that dynamic set up so clearly. And then you have the, you know, you have the revolution, which is star leads by um, going out and speaking the truth. I mean, she's throwing, she's throwing uh, smoke grenades and stuff back at the police. So, I mean, it's very clearly, there's a very clearly a um, uh, French Revolution feel going on to the whole thing, and that's on the face of it, though, right? What? But underneath of it, in in more important, I believe, is her name is Star, and so what do you, what does what do stars do? Well, they shine. So she needs to let her light shine. She needs to express herself. She needs to speak. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the whole story arc, you know, every story kind of starts and then you got building tension and problem and then you have a resolve of the tension. And that's what goes on in this film. She's star from the beginning. We're, and then we're told that, you know, her dad didn't name her star, uh, you know, for uh, without reason. And then it comes to this moment where it's her time to speak. 
and she does speak, you know, when she goes before the grand jury, her, the, the emotionalism of that moment was remarkable. Like, you know, they ask, uh, will you tell us what happened that night? And she says, I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you, I'll tell you more. You know, I'll tell you everything or something like that. She talks about, you know, he kissed me that night. And like, she, she goes into all of these emotive kind of things that aren't dealing with what actually happened, but that is the big moment. And even when she, she stands before the, the, um, law enforcement she, and she's got her thing. They're telling law enforcement says to disperse. And she says, you know, he lived, she just keeps re- yelling. He lived. And it was like, that was it. Just like, just em- emoting, uh, the real her. She's a, she is a, she is star and she is going to shine. And then that was the end at the very end, um, had this very secular humanist. We can fix it. We can break the cycle. We can accomplish these things. If we will just express ourselves, if we will just speak up. And a lot of this, I'm sure what was influencing the way I was coming approaching the film was Carl Truman's recent book, the rise and triumph of the modern self. And, uh, I'm about a fourth of the way through it or a third of the way through it. It's remarkable. And he, he deals with psychological man, and that there's this whole focus on the inner self, you know, that is the real self. And he says, you know, how could we, how can we have a world in which it's right for a person to say, you know, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, uh, or maybe it's I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I can't remember which way it is, but the point is, we we are so focused on psychological man. I my inner life is my true self, my real self, and then he ties it to this individual um expression this this duty to express myself and then the of course in the lgbtq community that's to come out of the closet and express my my true self but that my point is that rolled right through the film i mean it starts with star the tension builds the whole arc far more than the crti setup far more than bourgeoisie and proletariat setup is this this girl expressing herself, being her true self, and revealing that to the watching world? And as she does, salvation comes. As she does, there is a there is a recovery. There is a there is a solution in you expressing yourself. Beginning beginning and end, it bookends. If you watch the film, her kind of being star expressing herself. So my point in that whole thing is there's a second thing going on with those who are in leadership that are are aiding this kind of thinking. And that is they just really have bought into that. They've bought into the secular humanist psychological man and individual expression concept. And so, you know, how could it be wrong to give someone a place at the table? Because that is a place, it's a platform from which uh, this person can express him or herself. Truman actually talks about that in his books. He says, you know, with this whole notion of modern man, institutions which formerly were to shape you now are places and platforms where you can express yourself. And so we've been doing that at church for a really long time before any of this bad stuff came, right? I mean, we have every ministry available so that whatever personal giftedness you can discover about yourself, we have a place for you to serve. We have a place for you to express yourself. You know, that could be in the whole music ministry deal or it could be in just the different ways. We've been doing that for a very long time. And so this when that really hardens and crystallizes and the critical race theory and intersectionality is attached to it. Now you're you can see in this film how those two ideas merge together. And really, I believe the secular humanist psychological man personal expression is at the bottom of the CRTI. 
And so even as we correct it, one of the concerns I have right now in the SBC is that, okay, no one wants to talk about CRTI anymore, right? The seminary presidents came out and said they reject CRTI. And so, okay, we all reject it. Everything's good. You know, we view it as this quick flank of the enemy and perhaps they cause some damage, but now we all see what it is and we think that's the setup, but that's not really the setup. Um, this is like modernity and postmodernism that's now hardening with with um, with critical race theory and intersectionality. It, we're we're facing an army that has been marching to us for a very 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 long time, and they're now scaling the wall. And a lot of our leaders don't even see it. Um, they don't see it. Now they could watch this film. They could watch the hate you give and they could see the bourgeoisie proletariat. They could see black Panther parties, not good. They could see, um, you know, the rioting and all of that. But would they see like the poison pill? Would they be able to look to their daughters and say, you know, you are created in the image of God and praise God for that. But you are not at the center of the universe. You are not the star that shines and saves the day. And that principle, I think so many of our people have bought into that. And that's what, what at the end of the day, you know, critical race theory is just one expression of that very bad notion that you can see through so many of our films. And if you're a leader and you think that, if you think really this person expressing him or herself is the most important thing, you know, you're going to be swept up into this and you're going to now you're going to be at this conflict. Like, do I how do I renounce critical race theory and intersectionality, you know, and somehow still maintain some of these um, some of these other notions I have? We need a repentance all the way down. We need a reformation that's going to go all the way down to the root. I've got a bunch on that, Dr. Longshore, that I'd like to follow up on. But Dr. Moore, before I jump in, your turn first. Um, I don't have anything to add to what Jared said. I mean, I think he's, I think he's 100% right. You know, the um, for some reason, folks can't see it, or they're. Um, I think what has happened to SBC largely is just co-opting um, critical race theory language and trying to use it in different trying to uh, baptize it and use the language in the SBC while leaving behind the theory. But obviously, you can't do that. <laughs> obviously, I mean, when you, you just look at some of the video clips that are available on Twitter um, at various SBC entities, and um, they've went a step too far. It's it's more than just trying to steal language, you know, kind of plunder the Egyptian type mentality. It's the the idea that the language was designed to accomplish um, is still attached to the language, and um, and there's no there's very little rebuke going on there. I mean there there's statements and maybe there's there must be behind the scenes stuff going on, but but we still nevertheless we get new videos that come out with with SBC leaders in them and they're butchering scripture. I mean like some of this uh, this roundtable. Uh, what from was it from North American Mission Board with uh, J.D. Greer and I don't know who else was all in this this video, but the, they're just taking the critical race theory framework and plopping it down on scripture. I mean, hermeneutics is about the text telling us how to interpret. You know, it's not about us. We get this framework and we bring it and we plop it down on the text or lens and read it through that. That that's just tickling our ears, you know, uh, but that is what, I mean, it, it just surprises me when I see stuff like this. I'm like, and then it, it's almost like, I, I believe, so if I take everybody at their word, 
um, the total rejection of critical race theory. What the heck is this? <laughs> Like, what, what is this? These videos that we see that are being put out by SBC entities, that, that's straight critical race theory. It's not Bible. It's not biblical hermeneutics. It's not, it's not even Baptist faith and message. Like, what, I, I don't understand. I don't understand it. And then to gaslight, I hate that term, but to gaslight people who say, what about this video? What about what's being said here? Oh, that's not critical race theory. Well, what is it? It ain't Bible. You didn't get this from Scripture. Well, maybe what it is, if I can connect maybe back to what Dr. Longshore was saying a moment ago, is that 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 idea of categories of credibility, that the reason some of this sounds, uh, some of the stuff you're identifying there, Dr. Moore, about critical theory. Oh, it's not really critical theory. We're just talking about, uh, you know, the way things are. Maybe it sounds that way to the participants because of this psychological self that sees the end of all existence to be fully self-actualized. Um, Dr. Longshore, when when you confirmed you were coming on, you'd mentioned Truman's new book. And I, I had a copy at that point, but I had started reading it and I had in the last couple of days. Um, making very little way into it, though, when I saw that he was drawing on Philip Reeve, my eyes lit up. I have a I have an older friend here in my area who's been feeding me Philip Reef for years, saying uh, this guy saw it in the 60s. He knew psychological man was coming. He knew that the triumph of the therapeutic was going to colonize uh, our culture. And I mean, in my book, clearly Reef Reef was a prophet, and we're seeing sort of the full outworking of of his ideas. But but maybe specifically to come back to the movie to to touch on Truman and Reef. You know, in the introduction to that book, Truman says, who am I as uh, someone in my vocational life? So am I the person who is going to work every day to provide for my family who depends upon me? And that that's kind of the defining mark of my vocational life. Or I am, am I a person who needs to feel actualized and satisfied in the specific activities of my job to be actually my authentic self? Which self am I? And there's a version of this that happens in the uh, in in the movie in two places, I think. And it, it's that dynamic between am I who I am internally or am I who I am in my external relationships and what or what relationship do the two have? And so the first is with Star, who, you know, at the beginning of the movie does that really clear kind of exposition of what's called code switching, where uh, in her in her home community, she acts a certain way. When she's at the rich private school, she code switches to be star number two. So, you know, how, how do her external realities impact her internal uh, expression of herself? But then you've also got something going on like that with Maverick, because Maverick gives kind of a long speech to star in her bedroom where he says, uh, we live in a world that that just profits off black guys going to prison. I'm going to break that cycle. But he's also at that same time in conflict with his wife who is saying, we need to move out of this neighborhood. It's dangerous. Our kids are in danger. And and the movie says a couple different times, we live in Garden Heights, which is sort of the um, the more dangerous neighborhood, because my dad says our people live here. And so, I, again, with the, the the theme of contradictions that, that kind of comes washing out of this movie to me, I, I think that's maybe the crux of the of the conflict that's internal to these characters and affecting their externals. Am I the person who's here? Am I the person who's there? Or am I the person internally? 
And all that the external world really exists to do is give me a platform. And I don't want to go too far uh, without hearing back from you, but your point about institutions existing to actualize the individual, well, that's right here in the movie too, right? We have the uh, the advocacy group called Justice for Ju- uh, Just Us for Justice. And they basically exist in this movie to provide Star a platform when she's ready to take it. That the the you know the legal apparatus and all that, it's kind of just backstory to them being ready to hand her a bullhorn when she wants to hop up on the hood. And so do you th- do you see those things squaring with the insights you're drawing off Truman's book, Dr. Longshore? D- d- does that uh, get at what you're trying to talk about, a reformation coming all the way down? Yeah, there, there are interesting connections you made between Truman's book and the, um, and the film. And some of those are tricky because we've been taught to think of ourselves, um, you know, inwardly like the psychological man like Truman said so much that it almost sounds strange when uh I think Truman in his book said um you know I am son of so and so you know I am father of so and so and I'm an author of this book and I'm a professor and those are you know when you, the whole identity conversation just gets sloppy you know and and confusing I I think but there is something this we need to understand the importance of our social relationships. And so you'd see that in the film with the Mavericks resolve. He wants to stay there. You know, I mean, he, he knows things aren't right and he wants to do good right in his community, which is really good. I mean, that's a, that's another kind of back to your creation getting, he wants to stay there and that's right. I mean, how many people just, how many people just want to run away from their problems? And you're certainly looking at communities. I mean, there's communities all over our nation that are radically different than other communities in our nation. And to live and grow up in a place and say, I want to stay here and try to do good. You know, I know people wrestle through those kind of decisions and it's, it's easy to think, well, I'm just going to get out and every person's got to make decisions when they come in those kind of situations. And, uh, not, I'm not prescribing for anybody what they ought to do, but one thing that Maverick does see is the importance of those relationships and where where God has placed you and then trying to um, trying to rectify what needs to be rectified. So, yeah, there's a there's a number of connections there. I actually really resonated with that uh, that aspect of Maverick's character. Even the idea of our people are here is something that. I don't know, just got my eyebrow lifted because I'm influenced by the Southern agrarians. I think, you know, a time and a place and a community matter to to who I am. And they don't just matter in terms of um, actualizing myself. They matter to uh, they they matter in that I have a stewardship obligation to care for these people. Well, and I'm like you, I don't want to prescribe who moves and who doesn't. But I do think I grew up in a world where, uh, you know, being a guy from the deep south, a rural community. You moved out to make it. You moved out and got away to to make it. And reading Wendell Berry and some of those guys made me think that that's not the only way to make it. That there might be an obligation to that that's external to me to the people that I live around. And I should think about I should think about caring for these people. I'm, I would look at my dad's generation, and they talked about our community all the time. They they thought about the decisions they made in their individual lives by saying things like, "Well, this will be thought of this way in the community," or what this community really needs is X, Y, Z. And so with with Maverick uh, specifically saying, I'm here and I'm going to run a store because people need access to stuff real quick. I mean, that that's, that's a noble decision. That's a kind of making it. And so, uh, again, just trying to talk about the good things in this movie, 
I really appreciated that and thought, yeah, that's right. I remember when when we started seeing the footage and the aftermath of some of the cities burning after George Floyd's death. You know, black owned businesses was uh, they were often targeted just right along with, you know, the other businesses in the community. And I remember seeing interviews with people saying, like, where am I going to go buy milk? Where am I going to go get bread? Uh, and and Maverick, as a character, is the kind of guy being there saying, I have an obligation to my community. Uh, again, not prescribing anything for how you decide where you live, but I appreciate that it's at least an issue in this movie. So, that being said, anybody got any creational goodness we haven't touched on there? Because I think we might have some more stuff to talk about in the Fallen uh, heading. All right. Well, um, I mean, I guess we've kind of already transitioned there a little bit. Is the biggest fallen element of this movie that the sovereign self has to express itself? Is that the biggest idol in this movie, uh, Dr. Longshore? I say absolutely. I mean, there's obviously lots of lots of fallen dimensions you could talk about, but at the very heart of it is clearly this um, exalting of the human, which in a in a in a interesting way is common in many, 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 many of our movies that have nothing to do that aren't so dramatically about kind of like the black white dynamic and, um, and, uh, kind of cultural revolution through protest and rioting that, I mean, that's right at the forefront of this film, but yes, I believe people should see that underneath of it, the, the fundamental problem with it is star star is the savior and she is the savior as she expresses herself the real her the inner her as she finds her voice um then then salvation comes and we walk away from that going exactly i mean doesn't matter what color skin you have doesn't matter if you're male or female you walk away from that going with a thought like okay this is it this is it now if one day um along comes an ideology that says like critical race theory does perhaps also if you're black you have a special voice if you're black you have a voice that matters even more well that fits that fits the bill because i've already been taught you know um and along will walk an ideology that says you know if you're white you have a special voice and or wrong will walk or ideology if you're a female you have a special voice or if you're a male you have a special voice you can take that secondary ideology and kind of paste it on and, and fit it into lego it to this foundational problem of thinking that if I find my true self within myself and then I express my true self, salvation will come. That's the, that is the um, central problem with the film. Dr. Moore, do you have a different angle? Yeah, I think uh, Longshore's right that um, I think it also emphasizes her lived experience in, I mean, cause she is, she is the voice. I mean, everybody's expressing themselves. The father is, the mother is, the little uh, young child is at the end. I mean, everybody, even the police officers. Um, I mean, you can make that argument that they're all expressing themselves. Um, but Star is the one who she's the only witness. She's the only eyewitness. She's the only one who has, um, at least pertaining to this movie, has lived this experience. And not only that, but it emphasizes that she lived the gang violence too. That um, she's had two friends now, one killed by the hate of police officers. And the other, um, the hate of um, the gangs, right? And, and, and so she, no one else in this movie, um, at least any characters, have experienced both, um, both examples of hate. And so she acknowledges and says that we are the ones who are, who are continuing this cycle. Um, and, and so she is, she is indeed the savior, but it's because of that... Um, it's because of her lived experience, and that's that's a primary way that critical race theory comes in, you know. 
uh, to where even even the black police officers um, have not lived her experience, you know, and even even her father had, didn't have to live that as a child. Or I mean, the list goes on and on and on of how she has this unique voice that everybody needs to hear. Um, it, it's basically her world and everybody's living in it is, is the main issue that I that I have um, because it, it's it's almost like a well, it is almost like a messiah type um, emphasis. Like she's going to save everyone if they just bow to her voice. And uh, the the worldview, though, in this movie is all over the place. I mean, the 10, the starting the movie with the, the 10 uh, points of uh, being a Black Panther. Have, did y'all read those by chance? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, I mean, they are, some of it's good. Like, we want decent housing, fit for shelter of human beings. I mean, we can all think all agree with that. Um, we want black men to be exempt from military service is one of them. Number six, um, we want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails is number eight. Um, and yet at the end, the end of this movie is celebrating the arrest of the gang leader. Like it's like the police came and arrested the gang leader. And, yeah, man. And, and we're like celebrating the same police that were beating up black people earlier in the protest. <laughs> now they arrest they're celebrating the arrest of a black person. It's just, it's just all over the place on, in this movie. Um, it, and something interesting, it said number nine of the Black Panther thing is, uh, we want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in a court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities. And so I was just thinking of the police officer. You know, should we just have a jury of police officers when police officers go on trial? Um, you know, would would that be OK? Um, it's just it's just the and the racism, the blatant racism of the father, I thought was amazing because any I mean, if it, if it was a white guy saying that stuff about uh, it flipped around, people would would go nuts, wouldn't they? Yeah, I think uh, there's a whole bag of those kind of contradictions I want to walk through with you. But before we do that, we're going to have to let Dr. Longshore go. We uh, we appreciate the time you've been with us, brother. Thanks for your generosity. Um, Man, I know thank, you're at Twitter you. on, uh, excuse me, I didn't mean to speak over you there. I know you're on Twitter at Jared Longshore. Is that the best way for our listeners to keep up with you? Sure. Yeah. I'm on the Twitter and then, uh, Facebook and Instagram, all that stuff. Founders.org is where all of our content kind of lands. It's a great, great, uh, site to go to kind of a central place. And speaking of founders content, you have a new book coming out soon called wisdom for Kings and Queens. If I'm correct, it's up for uh, pre-order now. Is that correct? Uh, no, yeah, it's in, so it's not pre-order anymore. You might still be have like a pre-pub sale going. I'm not sure. You have to check founders on that. But yeah, Wisdom for Kings and Queens is out. And then Tom Askell and I um, have published a book that's available for purchase now called Strong and Courageous, Following Jesus Amid the Rise of America's New Religion. Excellent. Okay, we'll find wow. that at Founders. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been great to talk with you guys. Thanks for coming on, brother. Hey, thank you, brother. We hope to have you on again sometime. All right. Bye-bye. See you, brother. So, Jared, with some of the stuff you brought up there, uh, since we're talking about fallenness, I uh, I couldn't agree more with the the particular point you made about at, at one point Star is screaming in the face of the police. And even her uncle, who's played by Common, is seen as a bad guy when he tells her, you know, if it was a white dude getting out of a Mercedes, I probably would react differently 
than it is if it's a black guy getting out of a donk or some kind of, you know, um, or yeah, maybe not out of a different kind of car, but in a different neighborhood. A different neighborhood. Yeah, she said car. And the thing is, if if a white dude in Garden Heights or whatever is getting out of a Mercedes, he's probably getting treated the same as as anyone else. Like, um, but that's something that aggravated me because it, you and I have had this conversation before. It's just based on probability. Like, what is the probability in this neighborhood that someone who has gang tattoos all over him, for example, getting out of a car or reaching in a window? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just it's insurance. Like teenagers um, cost more money to insure in a vehicle. Literally, the way that in the entire insurance industry, like my life insurance, the older I get, the higher it goes up. The, or if you're a smoker, you're going to have higher premiums. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not discrimination against smokers to charge them more. Like, and and yet, that is how police officers are saying, okay, how do we survive and still do our job? I mean, that literally. So in this neighborhood that has this high of a crime rate versus this other neighborhood that has a much lower crime rate, which neighborhood are you going to be on more edge? Like, it, I mean, you think of the military. You think of if you're out... Um, in a, you know, the military right now are probably not on high alert in America, but if they're in Afghanistan, you know, it's not discrimination against Afghanistan. Um, it's just, it's frustrating to me because again, it's so contradictory. Um, and if you're a police officer, then you understand that now, obviously the police shooting in this was, was wicked and evil and he jumped the gun and failed. Um, and the young man should have not been reaching in the window either, but, but still, like, I, I think it's an unjustified shooting. Um, but, but anyway, go ahead, man. Well, on that, on that very point, sometimes I wonder when I, I, I've not just seen movies like this. I've run into people who embrace the ideology that a movie like this presents and that there's systemic bias and systemic injustice and whatnot. And, Look, I'm willing to even have that conversation. I think sure. it is a systemic problem that Planned Parenthood specifically targets black communities, for instance. I think that's a problem. Yeah. I think that they get federal funding to do that is a problem. That being said, I wonder if the author, who I know is uh, an African-American woman who lives, I believe, in Mississippi, lifetime resident in Mississippi. I just, I just want to ask her if she's ever been to a poor white trailer park because mm-hmm. a nice vehicle – in some of the the communities that are on my bus route growing up, yep, a guy getting out of it who looks like Post Malone, he's a white dude, but he's covered up in tattoos. He's in a nice car. I the way I have seen them, those encounters go down, doesn't look much different than what this movie presents as the encounter between Khalil and the police officer. Now, thankfully, nobody's gotten shot. I don't know anybody who got shot doing that. And I, I know that some of our listeners here are going to say, well, yeah, man, we we know black people who got shot. Um, that's an important difference. But nonetheless, there is still a, a, a degree of suspicion on uh, the part of the officers who, who's encountering that person, whatever the skin tone is in the neighborhood where violence is more historically likely to occur. And uh, if you say, well, yeah, but it all comes down to the shooting. Oh, well, I mean, just because I haven't run into it doesn't mean those stats don't exist. And we know that statistically. White people in those areas get shot at, too, by officers. Uh-huh. And so I, I really do wonder if the narrative of this unique experience isn't much more about class and environment than it is about ethnicity. 
Right. And I don't blame officers, as you've already been talking about. I don't blame officers for being more on edge in certain communities than they are others. I don't because they want to survive the encounter as well. Absolutely. I don't I don't think it's discriminating. I don't I mean obviously there can be bias, there can't but that that's got to be a case by case basis. The question is is there this systemic bias? But if you if you're going into again, I mean you're going to have to up in the entire insurance industry. I mean there are I can't remember what it is, but there are certain diseases that um that black people are more susceptible to than white people or vice versa. And it affects their insurance premiums with each, with each race or with women versus men or men versus women. And we're, you're going to have to upend all that. If, if, if treating people differently based on where they live or based on their gender or based or their on choices. their choices. Yeah. Um, if that is inherently, racist you're you're going to have to again up in the entire insurance industry and medical industries well, um, it's not even and, just those industries it's how we relate to one another there's there's a company that advertises on a bunch of podcasts i listen to where the pitch is do you live a healthy lifestyle uh, are you exercising do you eat well why should you pay the same insurance rate as someone who doesn't and i'm a i'm a i'm an overweight dude mm-hmm. and i hear that in my earbuds. And I say, that makes a ton of sense. The guy who's making choices to stay in great cardiovascular health shouldn't have the same uh, exposure to risk in an insurance environment the way that I do. Or again, a smoker or someone who is a drug user, right? Like there is an equity to it. There is a justice to us that justice to it, that the person who puts themselves in the best position gets the uh, the set of factors that out uh, that, that favors their position that that's not injustice it's actually just right that's the thing like and not only that but uh, star talking about her school um, and how it's it's emotional blackmail for her to make these assumptions basically she hates I mean she prefers herself above all these other people because she's blaming them. For her refusal, has anybody said like all the statements that she says at the beginning? Like if I if I use slang, I'm ghetto. Well, well, there's no proof of that. It's just an assumption in the movie. Um, It's stereotyping. It's stereotyping. It's I mean, folks would say it's racist if it was the other way around. You know, Um, not only that, but her feeling different at that school. Jeff, how do you feel when you get around a bunch of rich people who are dressed differently than you? Um, you like me feel great around hillbillies. I mean, we th- we grew up around hillbillies. That's who we feel comfortable around. Have you ever been around a bunch of Yankees who have a different access accent than you? Um, and is it a little uncomfortable? Is it their fault? Like I, I just it it aggravates me because it 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 basically says that everybody's job is to make you feel comfortable. And literally, that's the opposite of love. Like, that's the opposite of what the Bible tells us to do. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so what about all these people? You know, what about everyone else? Like, I'm not going to go into a a group of a bunch of Yankees and say, you got to start sounding like a hillbilly to make me comfortable. And I'm not going to change my accent. I just, I mean, it is what it is, you know. Um, And not only that, but I should be the one who's loving them and not worried about how I feel, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm to love my neighbor. It just that all that stuff just gets on my nerves because it, it's this 
it's emotional blackmail is what it is. It's just demanding that everybody bow to, to, to how you feel. And if you feel a certain way, it's everybody else's fault. And it, you can't live in a world where everybody's bowing to you. Like you literally, that world does not exist. And it, it's a trap. You know, and, th- and it, at the end of this movie, everybody has bowed to Star. And the people who refuse to bow, she's kicked them away. She won't have anything to do with them. Yeah, so I do think that probably, I'm not speaking for Dr. Longshore here. I know you aren't either, but I think probably that very element is connecting to the insights he raised from Carl Truman's book because the psychological self is interested in feeling safe, comfortable, actualized. And all the world has to be kind of marshaled to that that end. And so if it makes me feel uncomfortable, it's not just something I need to avoid or I need to learn to cope with or I need to accommodate myself to it has to be it has to be rejected it has to be destroyed it has to be removed and so it's what philip reef called the triumph of the therapeutic culture everyone has to feel good at all times but the problem is a fallen world won't accommodate that and it it certainly won't accommodate it on those terms i was thinking about uh what may be a different um it may be a different reaction than uh was intended i don't i don't know by the movie makers but when Star's boyfriend takes her to pick up Seven after Falcon King beat him up, you remember that part? Mm-hmm. And then here came Falcon, and they're all kind of trying to scramble to get out. I thought, you know, if I was that white kid in that neighborhood knowing that the gang leader was after me, I'd be very nervous, particularly because he stands out. And I remember watching the director's commentary. I think it was the director's commentary. It might have been an interview, but I think it was the director's commentary on Get Out. And if you remember how Get Out opens, um, there's an African-American guy who's walking in a white neighborhood. It's after dark. He's very uncomfortable. A car comes cruising by, and he's like, nope, and he heads the other way. And eventually, a white dude gets out and mugs him and throws him in the back of a car. And Jordan Peele talked about the experience he's had as a black man being in a white neighborhood, feeling very uncomfortable, feeling like he was exposed to danger. And... You know, my assumptions about Chris in Falcon King's neighborhood is pretty much the same assumption Jordan Peele has in a white suburban environment. I don't think that's a product of some kind of moral failure. I think it's just how humans kind of gravitate towards the things they're accustomed to. Yes, amen, 100%. When I went to Ecuador on a mission trip, I stuck out like a sore thumb because I was white. And not only that, but I was the fattest man in the country, evidently. And, um, you know, and I'm not a giant dude, but but everybody there was skinny, man. Everybody there was skinny. And so even that, like like the way, you know, like in school, like in high school, ask, ask overweight people how they feel. You, you know what I'm saying? Like like ask them how how they feel about it, it's very comparable to how a lot of minorities describe their situation. Oh, or or man, I have had these conversations. Yeah. The the person who's super poor. The, yeah. Uh, everybody knows like one of the two or three poorest people in the school. Yes. It's a similar experience. And so I think the idea is um, therapeutic culture would say, well, we've got to get rid of all those distinctions. But the distinctions exist. There's and there's no way to there's no way to hum- homogenize human culture, human experience in a way that's actually just. And so, you know, it, it, it's a project that you can't ever escape from. And, you know, earlier in the episode, I talked about kind of feeling like the entire endeavor is a spider's web because you can just you, you can't ever eliminate all differences of experience. Right. And you can't eliminate 
anyone uh, you know being portrayed either rightly or wrongly. It, it's just an impossible project. And really for me, I just kind of want to say like, well, I'm out on the project. If it can't be done, I'm not going to sit and try to build the perpetual motion machine. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's not how the real world exists, I'm not going to spend time uh, tilting against windmills to borrow from Don Quixote. I'm going to try to love my neighbor well. And so what you said, I, um, you said about loving others. I mean, it's a virtue in Christianity, and therefore it's a it's an objective virtue to be hospitable. Mm-hmm. to accommodate the other person, right? To try to think of them, put their needs ahead of your own and whatnot. But it does seem like the identity politics mechanism flips that entirely around and says, I'm going to assume everyone around me is going to put my needs ahead of their own. And it's this inverse and perversion of hospitality that is ultimately going to just breed not just discontent, but hostility towards your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And it removes moral culpability, total moral culpability. Like, they want the star wants the wants the uh, gang leader to be held accountable, the police officer to be held accountable. In this movie, that's what it emphasizes. But it doesn't want, and it wants the white friend who's a racist um, to be held accountable. But it doesn't want um, the young man who was selling drugs for um, the guy, the Falcon gang, King. Yeah, Falcon King. So the young man's Khalil, the drug dealer he's working for is Falcon King. Yeah, doesn't want Khalil to be held accountable for for that. Um, I mean, it justifies it. That's the only job he can get. He can't go work for uh, Maverick at the grocery store. Um, you know, I, I just he's got a car. He can't drive over to a different neighborhood and and work. Like, well, and then what? I mean, what if the white cop could only get into police academy? You know, what if he? What if he came from a line of cops and didn't have a lot of other vocational careers? This is why it just becomes a double standard that's impossible to live by. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ultimate version of I want these people held accountable for their choices, but not my people, my friend held accountable for his choices, is Khalil reaching into the car and pulling the the hairbrush out. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the book, this is a much less ambiguous scene, and the movie takes a lot of criticism for this because in the book. Khalil opens the passenger side door to check on Star, and the cop shoots him. Mm. Uh, in this one, they leave it more ambiguous. So the, he pulls out an object of the vehicle after leaning into the vehicle, disobeying the officer's orders, and is shot. And then as the officer comes over, um, she's telling him, hey, help him, help him. He's bleeding out. And if you remember, the officer's response is, where's the weapon? And so in the movie, the officer clearly believes a weapon has been pulled out mm-hmm. and it's got to be secured before he can do anything else because he is an individual is going to be self-interested and wants to be safe, too. And so, like you just said, oh, he has to be held accountable for those things. Khalil can't be held accountable for his. And it, justice just doesn't allow that. Right now, this was a tragedy. Absolutely. This is awful, and it, it reflects a tragedy that's awful that happens in the real world. So mm-hmm. I'm not diminishing any of that, but choices have consequences, both the officers and Khalil's here. Yeah. And the movie sets us up to really look at that right on the nose. And I don't see a just way to say, well, one person's set of choices mattered and the other one shouldn't be considered at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it wants us to celebrate Maverick, one to break the line. Yeah. For his family, but also celebrate Khalil because he's selling drugs so that because his grandma's got cancer. Yeah. Or like it's it's wanting us to justify both of those and and you or can't. see Falcon King as a bad guy for yeah. preying upon people, but not see Khalil uh, for doing that with drug selling or 
to yeah. celebrate Maverick for raising his family well, while at the same time condemning Falcon for not even marrying Aisha and being a father to the children he sired with her. Uh, that, that's what I meant when I said earlier. The, the movie is just a bag of contradictions, and there's mm-hmm. no just way to say, well, we can do the celebrating you want over here, but we have to do on the exact same you know basis uh, criticism of comparable elements. Mm-hmm. And, and I really do think the only mechanism you have to explain why the movie wants you to do that is that that's what Star wants. Star is the central psychological figure, and mm-hmm. her inner needs – have to be conformed to reality has to conform to stars psychological needs and yeah it's just an impossible venture oh yeah yeah and the world is right like i mean they need this movie desperately needs jesus an objective savior who's not flying by the seat of his pants but it's based on objective truth that flows literally literally from the standard of truth, the standard of goodness, the standard of righteousness. God that stands himself. outside of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. It, it's conforming to him instead of, I mean, can you imagine? So if every young lady watches this movie and says, I'm going to be like Star. I mean, I've got a daughter and a wife and both of them being their authentic selves. You know, if they took this to heart and said, I'm just going to be me and everybody's going to have to conform to me. It's not going to be good in the house, (laughs) not to mention, I mean, you can imagine if every young lady in the world adopted this mentality, eventually you're going to have two young ladies whose authentic selves are contrary to one another. And this movie even has it. Well, and that's what Falcon King is in this movie. He wants Star to conform to his self-interest. Yeah. He wants Star to be quiet about drugs being sold in Garden Heights and about Khalil's relationship to that. He doesn't want attention put on his organization. He has a psychological need to um, have his best interest actualized. And yet, for the most arbitrary reasons, he's the bad guy. Now, I get it. What he's doing is more inherently wicked than what Star is attempting to do to give attention to her friend. I get that. But the movie holds up. It just has to be Star's way. And if we just pick someone to say it has to be her way, well, we can substitute anybody into that dynamic and say, well, why does it not have to be Falcon's way? Absolutely. And the movie doesn't offer us any resources. There's no standard of correction. I mean, you you even have – so what Star is trying to do, the dad is already trying to do. He's already said, I'm going to break this cycle. I'm going to break this cycle. And, and Star is going to break the cycle as well. But it, it's interesting, isn't it, that – the police officer helps break the cycle by getting rid of the gang member. Um, instead of the father having to shoot him, um, the police officers take him away. It's just that was the most staggering, staggering uh, contradiction in the movie to me. When we get to that final narrative where Falcon is being led out of the house in cuffs, you know, we get that voiceover where Star says the community decided that Falcon. You know, wasn't going to terrorize us anymore. I can't remember the exact language, but the idea was the community had decided that they weren't going to allow Falcon to rule over them, which, guess what? I'm really in favor of. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good decision. But they have to use the officers that they have been decrying the entire time mm-hmm. to get him out of there. And when they arrest him in the movie, there's no complaint about defining him as a drug dealer the way there was with Khalil. Right. There's no complaint about defining him according to the bad things he'd done 
rather than whatever needs he thought he had to meet through those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the cops here are very much like a necessary part of society that have a job to do that's important to the life of the community. Mm-hmm. And the movie never addresses the contradiction whatsoever. Khalil is young Falcon, and Falcon is old Khalil, and they're to be treated entirely different only on the basis of Star likes one and doesn't <laughs> see him as a threat. Again, she's the important psychological you know, individual that has to have her needs met. And the, you know, Falcon is the dangerous person that Star does not like, and therefore he must be seen as a danger. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's nuts. And not to mention even, I mean, they don't even, they don't even try to make an argument, like with the police officer who's guilty, they don't even try to make an argument that the whole police department's guilty. They just, boom, go to start protesting the whole police department. And I'm just like, there's not even... I mean, so a jury of his peers, they don't indict, and you still go down. You don't go after the jury. You don't go after the police officer. You don't go after any of the people. The judges. The judges, the DA. You don't go after any of them, but you go after literally the people who were not involved in the shooting, who weren't even there. I mean, her uncle there as a cop, you know, evidencing that there are actually police officers who have a great deal of concern for Star's community. Doesn't she say something? Oh, at the very end, she's like, my dad and my uncle get along now. They even stopped their beefing. And I'm just like, like, what? Well, I mean, they say in the movie, while they're they're first raising the, the question of whether or not Star is going to be presented as a witness to the grand jury, Carlos tells Maverick, uh, after after Maverick says, Star's not your daughter, Carlos says, well, it didn't feel that way while you were in prison. And we're supposed to understand what the what the book tells us is that Star lived with Carlos. Mm-hmm. While Maverick was in prison, paying off his, uh, you know, obligations to the to the the Falcon Kings or whatever, to the Kings, uh, whatever the gang name was there. Mm-hmm. And so Carlos clearly cares about her. In the book, Carlos, um, the younger sibling, keeps his bike at Carlos's house, or I think maybe in the in the book, the younger sibling is a girl. But either way, the bike is kept at Carlos's house because it's not safe to keep it uh, at Maverick's house. It'll get stolen by somebody in the neighborhood. Mm. Um. And so when I think about this now, now we have seen Black Lives Matter. They have done what you've just kind of decried the movie from. They have blamed the justice system and they have blamed uh, society that built it. And they've tried to destroy all those things to destabilize them, in some cases, literally burn them to the ground. So the ideology moves pretty quickly to what you're seeing. The ideology knows where it's going and that you can't just arbitrarily blame the cops. But there's this in, entire supporting structure around it. And it has to be brought down, too. And so in that way, it's a universal acid. Nobody makes it out. Everybody in some way, even the young lady playing star is an oppressor because her light skin is more palatable to a white audience. And so she took a role that should have went to a dark skin girl. Mm-hmm. Nobody makes it out. I mean, spider web is one comparison I've used. But again, acid's the other. It just dissolves everything. Nobody passes the standard. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. It was fascinating to me with all this statement against statements against white people that the safest place, the safest school that they wanted to send their children to was a white school like Maverick. Like they all agreed like it just the, even that is bonkers to me concerning the worldview that's being argued here. You know, like. Yeah, but even that 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 school where she is safe, she's literally the movie acknowledges safer than she would be at the high school in her community. With her own people. I mean, that's that's her language. I'm not, you know, I don't view it that way, but but that's my people. Sure. It's objectively safer, but it's still a place of evil 
because she can't be herself there, right? Yeah. The the you know maybe the biggest relational hypocrisy in this movie is with that uh, that young lady who's supposed to be the basic white chick, you know, who was Star's friend. And so there's two scenes in this movie that just show you um, inherent in this identity politics, this cultural Marxism way of thinking, uh, is an inescapable hypocrisy and conflict where someone is going to come out on top. So one is they're in the, the living room. Star is clearly distracted, as she should be, by the death of her friend. The other friends are playing video games. Somebody switches the TV and you see a clip of like, oh, this officer who shot uh, – a uh, black teenager comes on. She wants to watch it. So while she's watching it, um, the the officer's dad comes on. It's like, hey, my family got death threats for my son being involved in the shooting. And then the basic friend says, oh, that's terrible. I'm sorry to hear that or something to that effect. And then she says, yeah, the cop's life matters, too. And Star gets very upset. And the dialogue there is so important because when the third friend comes over to kind of intervene and starts being a ref, and I think that that third friend is supposed to be the character the audience identifies with. Star says to her friend, you said Khalil's life, or, you know, she said, it, it, she didn't use Khalil's name, but she says, you just said that officer's life is more important than the guy he shot. Well, that is nothing uh, that the friend had said. She, she said nothing to that effect. So the basic friend in response looks at the third friend and says, she just called me a racist. And Star says, no, I didn't. And and here's the thing, both of them have just grossly misrepresented each other, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But only Star is supposed to have been seen by the audience as have as having suffered an insult, mm-hmm. right? It, you know, her friend stands there guilty of saying the officer's life mattered more when that's not what the friend said. Mm-hmm. But the friend's also guilty of falsely accusing Star of calling her a racist and. It's just crazy. It's just crazily unjust. It's what the Bible would call unequal weights and measures. It's a double standard. The oh, other one absolutely. is when uh, Star freaks out on that friend with her hairbrush and leaves the go- poor girl cowering in the sawdust, crying, because Star has threatened her and has terrified her. And in that scene, man, honestly, you realize Star is no better ethically than the officer she's you know, hoping will receive whatever justice she's looking for. She had a moment of power where she could terrorize someone and she took full advantage of it, left the girl crying in the dirt. And I don't know what else you call that other than a monster, except in this movie, Star's supposed to be the good guy. So I guess we're supposed to see that as okay. Hmm. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the movie longs for Jesus, man, longs for, Perfect righteousness, injustice. I mean, not injustice, and not self mere self expression. Um, I mean, you know, God, God, and thankfully God's word is written down. You know, it's not this arbitrary express yourself type thing. You remember that old song, Madonna song? Yeah, I do actually. I have older sisters. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, express yourself. Um, if you want it right now, let me show you how. Um, but anyway. So thankfully, God's word's written down. Everything God requires of us, he has told us in his word. And then his son came and fulfilled all that God required of us to do. But then died the death that we deserve so that all those who trust in him are saved eternally. You know, God God is a much better father than Star's uh, matriarchy. Um, and she is a type of uh, mother or queen 
uh, in this movie. Um, God the Son is a much better Savior than Star's queenly reign. Uh, the Spirit is a much better seal of salvation than bowing to Star's arbitrary definition of love, uh, which will probably change. Because uh, expressing yourself, you know, if it's it's probably fluid, and um, she's gonna as she matures, that expression is gonna look different, and you know, people change, man, and standards change. It's just a trap, a chaotic trap of of misery, except for the person expressing themselves. But but even the person expressing themselves, literally, they're not happy unless everybody is submitting to them. And I don't know in what world that actually happens. Like. Even when you're, I mean, maybe if you're a dictator, everybody does it. Um, but I just, it's almost like, uh, I don't know, a bunch of a bunch of little dictators running around. And oh yeah, for sure. The autonomous individual has to be crowned, and we're all in competition. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you're transitioning us into sort of categories of redemption, uh, and I appreciate that. So, um, what were you just saying? I think I just stepped over you. No, no, that's good, man. You're good. Um, the failure of redemption in this movie is so awful in that, like, again, as I said earlier in the, in the episode, I'm rooting for this family. I like star. Um, yeah. You know, they kind of hooked me in like, I want to see this young lady do well, but you know, it all is sort of the narrative, the arc that Dr. Longshore was talking about that the, the, the arc ascends to star using her voice, right? Using her weapon. She's going to speak. And so she hops up on the hood and it's supposed to be this big crowning achievement, this uh, shifting moment in the narrative. And again, it's because the psychological individual has been actualized. But if you remember, she kind of does two or three sentences on the bullhorn, and then a cop shoots tear gas into the crowd. And what does she say? She says, no matter how much we speak, they're never going to listen. Nothing's ever going to change. And then she hops down and goes and grabs the canister and throws it back, which I think is sort of this homage to that famous photo from the Ferguson uh, riots after Michael Brown's death. And so the movie tells us it's, it's gotta be star speaking. That's where the, that's where redemption is going to come from. She's going to actualize herself as the great voice of the voiceless and not two minutes after she does that, we're told it's not going to change anything. Nothing's ever going to change. And really what happens to star is, is the opposite of redemption as well, because star moves from, a young woman who uh, laughs with her family and loves people around her dearly to this screaming, crying rage monster. And we don't really see her from that moment of her picking up her weapon. We don't really see her have a peaceful moment uh, the rest of the movie until the very end, like the entire last third of the movie. She is a, she's consumed by her emotions. And again, the stuff she's dealing with is real, uh, and, and and awful in the sense that like oppression exists and, and people who are subject to it should feel outrage over that. But we're told by the movie itself, it's not going to change anything. And then we're watching the movie. It's changed her into someone who is much more miserable and hostile to the world around her. Hmm. There's just no redemption that there's everything we're sold as redemptive turns out to be false. Oh, I mean, I mean, and I mean, even if you go like this, Black Lives Matter, defund the police, you go to these communities and you read, I mean, you can read, you read online, you read these headlines of the crime rates skyrocketing in these communities. And most of these communities are minority communities. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it just blows my mind that the logic is just, it's just not there. They don't, they're not, they're not, they don't care about helping people. 
if they did, I mean, wouldn't you want to I understand reform the police? I understand. Let's make it better. Let's make it, you know, let's fix it. I understand that this whole defund and sending counselors type stuff. That just, you know what? That's what they should have done in this movie, Jeff. Instead of arresting Falcon King, they should have sent in a counselor. Yeah, I mean, you start to see how futile some of these ideas are. Uh, and, and honestly, that's not me. I don't have to be the white guy who's speaking as a white savior to deliver that news. Daryl Harrison and uh, Virgil Walker on the Just Thinking podcast mm-hmm. on their BLM episode, they said that Black Lives Matter should be called Black Deaths Matter because Black Death or Black Lives Matters selectively picks certain dead black people to to launch their fundraising efforts around and none of the money goes to the families of those who died yep and charles barkley uh watching him on uh, a broadcast of the nba from within the bubble he said this idea that we're going to defund the police he said that's that's an awful idea for poor black communities yep because wealthy white people out in gated communities don't need the cops but a single black mother who uh, has somebody break into her house in a rough neighborhood? She needs somebody to call. Who's she going to call? Yep. And so it's not, again, it do, you don't have to be just some privileged white dude uh, to to see these things. It, it's people from within African-Americans' own community who are saying, guys, there's some there's some real craziness that this is going to bring to pass. And it's, it's pretty obvious it's going to happen, and it's already happening. Absolutely. I mean, like when I lived in Kentucky, pastored for six years in Kentucky, I was in Houstonville, Kentucky, and it was meth was all over my community. I lived in a very impoverished community. Um, right across the street from the church was a house that had open 24 hours on the outside of the house. It was actually a trailer put on the outside, open 24 hours. Um, right behind my house, there was a meth house busted. Um, right up the road, there was another meth house. I mean, it's just, and everybody knew where they were. Everybody, mm-hmm. I knew where I could go if I wanted to get drugs in my community. I didn't, I don't do drugs, obviously, but I knew as the pastor of that community, I knew exactly where I could go to get which drug I wanted if I wanted it. I mean, it, and yet somehow in that community, you imagine like we need the, we need the police for that community. Like we wouldn't want the, to defund the police. And it's, it, they're arresting people all the time up through there too. Like I would go, I would go visit at the jails a lot because, you know, children of my members are in prison and I would go and visit often because of that. I mean, it was just all over our community. Um, and yet there, there were, there were no minorities in our community. That was all white people, all impoverished white people. Um, I mean, it's just, and they're they're everywhere. Those types of communities are everywhere. Like, and yet to argue, like with critical race theory, that 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 community is oppressing, like LeBron James. You know, I, I don't understand that. <laughs> yeah, it kind of strains, strains uh, credibility or credulity, really credulity rather than credibility. Uh, yeah, on that front, you know, we're talking about lived experience. I, I really do think there's something to sort of. Similar classes in society have similar experiences. Um, not too long ago, I was driving to work and coming. I was pretty near my house, which I've told y'all, like, pretty near my house. There's some rough communities, and I was driving down the road. I was going too fast. I confess here now in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, an officer pulled me over, so I pulled up into uh, this driveway of a, of a milk barn or an abandoned milk barn. You know, there's kind of decaying barns around, and I pulled up in there. And uh, the officer came up to me. Um, I actually did, without having seen this movie, 
I did exactly what Maverick trained uh, his kids to do. I put my hands up, not on the dashboard because I couldn't reach it as well, but I just wrapped them around the steering wheel. And mm-hmm. I've been doing that for years. I turned the interior light on uh, if it's at night because I think, well, if I'm a cop, what kind of situation do I want to walk up on? Yep. And so I just had my hands up on the steering wheel. Officer comes up. We talk. Uh, when it's time for me to sign the documents, I took his pen and I was writing on the pad. Uh, it's like a plastic notepad on my windowsill. And I'm writing and I go to hand him the um the pin back and my hand kind of drug it across the thing and it knocked it out of my hand and it fell down into my car, the pin. Well, as soon as that happened, the officers took, the officer took three steps back and put his hand on his gun because he knew I was about to reach into the floorboard of my car. Now this guy was white as I was. We're probably around the same age. Uh I was, uh, you know, I'm not driving the nicest car in the world, but I was driving a a well-kept car. I had a tie on because I was going to do a professional job. And he reacted as if he might be potentially in danger. And you know what? I don't blame him at all. Yeah. And so what I said is, officer, I'd like to pick that pin up. Are you okay with me reaching down there? And he said, yes. He stayed right where he was standing and he kept his hand on his gun. And I got the pin and I handed him his stuff back. He stepped back up once my hands were visible again, took the stuff from me. And that was the end of our interaction. He told me to be safe. And I just look at that stuff and I think, man, I don't know how different the experiences or in certain neighborhoods where people look like me but make bad decisions and may want to fight cops over it versus neighborhoods where they don't look like me and make bad decisions and want to fight cops over it. Yeah. I don't blame the cop for acting in his own self-interest one bit, and I don't think you justly can. Yeah, and you and I, I mean, growing up, I got pulled over a lot. Did you get pulled over a lot, a lot as a teenager? I got pulled over once on a major highway uh, and the officer told me before he asked to search my car that he pulled me over because I was following too close to the white line. Uh-huh. I had my car set on cruise at the speed limit. You know, him saying I was too close to the white line means I had not crossed the white line. Right. And he pulled me over for that. And I got out of the car and let him search because I just didn't think I just didn't know about any bad cops who would drop something in your car at that time. So I'm not you know, I'm not denying that bad cops exist. I'm just saying I don't know that there's a huge disparity between classes of people and their experience with cops. Yeah. Um, and I went to the back and I was talking to the officer and I said, uh, excuse me, to the officer's partner. And I said, I I wasn't speeding and there's nothing wrong with driving closer to the white line than the yellow line in the center of the lane. And he said, I don't know what this guy's problem is. He's been in a bad mood all night. And mm-hmm. the guy went around my car, looked in the trunk and eventually let me go. I was on the side of the road for about 30 minutes. I hadn't done anything wrong. In fact, I had intentionally done things right and I still got pulled over for it. Yeah, I've I've had the same thing. Maybe it was the same police officer since we grew up in the same hometown pull me over for be, being cl- too close to the white line. Um, when I was in college, so I was probably 18, 19, um, I was on um, I-40 between Cookville and Crossville, and a police officer pulled me over, or state trooper did. He actually made me get out of the car and come back to his cruiser while he sat in his car. So I was at his passenger window talking to him while he wrote me the ticket. Um, like he, so it's just, <laughs> I mean, the, and you know, I'm, I'm almost powder, you know, I, I'm extremely white. <laughs> like, you are super white. I just, I just, so, and it's not just that when I, when I lived in Kentucky because of the community I lived in, I, I drove, I had a seminary car that I drove, I drove my wife's car that she got when she was 16 years old to seminary. And dude, 
I mean, it it is. It was beat up. Had like two hundred fifty thousand miles on it. Looked like, you know, it did look like a su- suspect car. So I got pulled over quite a bit in my own community. Um, you know, most of the time, police officers, unless they're running your plates, they can't see what color you are when you're in the vehicle at night. Like it's not like they know what color this person is at least when they pull you over, unless they're running your plates before they actually pull you over, and they may be. Um, but, but anyways, I, I just, I think I, there, there's definitely, at least based on statistics, there is some disparity there. Um, but when you take that disparity and you say, okay, how, what's the crime rate in the community that these, that folks getting pulled over is happening? You know, like what's the, what's that crime rate compared to these other communities where supposedly folks are getting pulled over less? Like, and then you factor in the crime rate. Well, that may answer, and it's not a race thing. Like, you know, I just there's so much more that needs to be asked of these questions. I mean, if you I, w- I wonder what stats would say, like what what is the most the highest crime rate where there's the least minorities that community, wherever that community is. Let's compare that community and folks getting pulled over and where there's no minorities, only white people. Let's compare that community to this other to this minority community where there's a high crime rate. And let's see if there is any disparity between the two. Right. I mean, I am suspicious that you're going to see more commonality than than disparity. And, and I'll be honest, even the guy like it annoys me that you and I both got pulled over for um, following too close to a white line. But the reason that cops doing it is because they're idiot teenage kids running around the, on the roads at night. And he knows that idiot teenage boys tend to do idiotic stuff that could put other people in danger. And so, like, I can get upset about it. I can get outraged about it. I certainly would if you had been shot. I've been outraged by it. Uh, but I also can look at that cop and go, well, that annoys me, and I don't like it one bit. I do actually think it's unjust. But you understand idiot teenage boys sometimes hurt people when they're driving vehicles by themselves for the first couple of years of their lives. Yes. And so I'm not delighted by it, but I also can't fault you for understanding the dynamics of society as they actually exist in real life when it comes to who presents a threat to other drivers on the road. And in that sense, me as a young yeah. teenage boy, I did. Exactly right, man. And so it makes sense. Like I've gotten pulled over less the older I've gotten, you know. Um, and you drive like a grandma. That's it. Well, I probably drive better now than whenever I was that age, too. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I rode with you the other day and actually kissed the ground when I got out of the vehicle. You sure, you did. sure you did, pal. <laughs> Quit telling your lies. It's hard for me to sell that when I've already admit, admitted that I got pulled over for driving too fast not too long ago. Hey, so, I mean, we've already kind of talked about this and we'll wrap it up here. Is there a better world available? You know, in the hate you give, the better world comes when the community decides to fix itself. And we've already talked about a ton of contradictions. Well, let me just run this last contradiction by you, Jared. Sure. Maverick's part of the community, right? Star's part of the community. Seven's part of the community. Aisha's part of the community. Is Falcon King part of the community? Uh. Um, how does Maverick have his store? I think Falcon King brought it, bought it for him. Oh, wow. So how does the community fix the community? Who gets to identify who's part of the community and who's a threat to the community? Hmm. Falcon King probably thought he belonged to the community. Star didn't think he belonged to the community. Khalil did. Khalil did. Even though he was a drug dealer. Yeah. And so this movie can't even figure out justly. Again, we know why. We know that this movie is built around what Star wants as the autonomous authoritarian individual but this movie can't even figure out who its community is outside of just we want to do what star thinks 
And even in saying the community decided, she says the community decided to to put down the no snitching rules, which sort of, you know, hit my radar back in the 2000s when Carmelo Anthony was in a, in a music video about not telling the cops about crimes committed in your community. Huh. And people pointed at that and said, you know, the, the no snitching rules stop actual predators in the community from being held accountable by the police. And in this movie, the no snitching rules that the community had embraced had to be put down in order to, to get Falcon King uh-huh. away as a danger to the community. So what part of the community's rules and perspectives are good and what's bad? Right. The community uh-huh. once upon a time held very firmly to no snitching rules, according to this movie. Then the community decided not to anymore. Well, was the community irresponsible when they were adopting and practicing no snitching rules? Are they more responsible now? Um, who gets to decide that? Uh-huh. And so I do think there is an intrinsic lack of objective justice in this movie that shows the the project is futile. You cannot live together with people on shifting standards like this. We we can't have a society or a community unless people agree to an objective standard that we all have to conform to. And so there's going to be disagreements, but what we need is the objective standard of the Lordship of Jesus Christ expressed uh-huh. in his word that obligate me not just to conduct myself justly, meaning I don't use one standard for people I like and a different standard for people I don't like. Uh-huh. But it also obligates me to receive my neighbor in hospitality, love them more than myself, and put their needs ahead of me. Uh-huh. And so I can see a way forward to live with people in real community, not perfectly because it's still a fallen world, but in real community where we care about each other and can live together. If I have Jesus as Lord and his rules to guide me, uh-huh. if we have to build, try to build a world around identity politics, cultural Marxism, the shifting uh, demands of political correctness or the insistence of my desires as as a actualized autonomous self, all I can do is live in open, outright hostility to my neighbor. It, uh-huh. I might be able to put that off a, a little bit. I might be able to roll it down the hill a few minutes, but it's eventually going to get there, and it's going to be nature red in tooth and claw. Uh-huh. And so with the hate you give, I think the question is, it's actually where will your affections go? What love will you give? Will you give your love towards God and your neighbor in light of who your God is? Or do you give your love to yourself and your desires? Uh-huh. If it's that second option, y'all are going to destroy each other. Yep. If it's the first option, you can actually love for each other. You can actually love each other. And your love for each other can help you thrive in a way you couldn't do apart from each other. Uh-huh. So I would just encourage people to to choose wisely. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you need a personal relationship with Christ. You know, you need to repent and believe in him, denying yourself, picking up your cross and following Christ. I mean, that's the answer that this movie longs for, um, because it's not just centered around one individual with a voice, um, you know, one individual with an arbitrary voice, but an actual individual who is Lord of the of creation. And um, he is I mean, he's reconciling all things to himself. We can either get on board with that or we can kick against the goads and be cast into a lake of fire one day. He'll so be we, Lord either way. Yeah, he, he is Lord, and every person is going to bow to him. Um, you know, and I, he's a much better – he's a much better Lord. He's a much better Savior, much better groom. I mean, he's just – he's better all the way around. And, um, I mean, 
it's interesting our our worth or our expression is only valuable when it is in lockstep with him you know Absolutely. otherwise it's otherwise it's de- destruction mm-hmm. you know yeah i mean my voice is only valuable star's voice is only valuable in so far as she says what the lord has made clear he's the only god and so if your voice contradicts his you're a blind god you're going to fall into a trench and everybody who follows you will too absolutely but if your voice echoes his well you're loving your neighbor well and you can live and and really even thrive in a fallen world so again the choice is set before us jesus is lord and you're either going to kneel before him in affection and submission or you're going to be washed away Mm-hmm. All right, man. Well, I'll put a bow on this listener. Uh, we're going to put links to Jared Longshore's Twitter and Founders Publications in the show notes. Um, Jared, where can our listeners find you out there on the Internet? You can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. Um, I want to encourage you also to pick up my book, uh, The Pop Culture Parent, and uh, do some small groups uh, with it and, and uh, give it to your uh, children, if they've got young children or your grandchildren, uh, if they're, I mean, they're all trying to raise uh, children up uh, to live in a pop culture world for the glory of God. And in our book, we show you how to do that. So be sure to pick that up. Absolutely, guys. you got to get a copy of that, and that would be a great Christmas gift to give as well. I think uh, if you've got believers you love and who obviously, like all of us, participate in the world of pop culture, this will be a help to them. So think about that for your Christmas list. Uh, I'm at Right Jeff on most social media platforms. The podcast is at PCCDPod on those same social media platforms. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform uh, and tell a friend uh, about the show. And I think that's about got it wrapped up here. Jerry, anything else? No, that's it, man. I, I'm looking forward to our uh, future episode. Um, maybe we'll get it done before Christmas, wrestling with uh, suicide. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. All right, listener, for Jared Moore, I am Jeff Wright, and we are reminding you to live every moment as if you are before the face of the Lord. Because you are. Talk to y'all next time.